Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Well, hello again. It's Martin here, back for another episode of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. And I'm here with my occasional co-host and best friend in the whole wide world, Chanel. Hello. So uh, what we've got today is a very special episode that I'm terribly excited to present to you guys. So on the very first episode of this podcast, uh, I mentioned that I would eventually start doing audio readings for you. And uh, I haven't been putting it off, but it's been sort of on the back burner. I've been excited to do it, but I've never done it before. So it was a combination of I can't wait to do it. But I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so I finally sat down a couple of days ago, and uh, I, I I did a I did an audio reading just for this podcast. I read from a short story called Footsteps. Yeah, Footsteps is one of the first. Uh, you'd read me some short stories, but I specifically remember you like writing Footsteps and reading it to me. And it was one of the first stories where I really thought, like, holy crap. Like, Martin's a really good writer. Because I already thought you were talented because I was never one to sit down and write stories. But Footsteps was, like, the one where I was like, wow, that is so creative and how clever. And It's one of my favorite stories of yours still. We were students at Cal State San Bernardino yeah. when I wrote it. Uh, you were finishing up your bachelor's degree. I was, I was wrapping up my master's degree. I probably had about a year or so left in the program. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was the first uh, fiction story that I had published. Uh, the, the first thing that I ever had published was actually a, a, a nonfiction essay, some creative nonfiction. So Footsteps uh, represented the first fiction that I'd ever had published, and it was published in the Pacific Review, which is the literary journal at Cal State San Bernardino. Uh, and it was published there in 2005. But then seven years later, uh, I signed a, a publishing deal with Exciting Press. Will and Trekin, the uh, creative director at Exciting Press, is a big fan of Inside the Outside, and uh, we talked a little bit about working together. And so uh, I had some short stories that I had written, and they were just kind of, uh, I, I kind of had them sitting sitting around. I didn't know what to do with them. And so luckily, uh, you know, Will and I got to talking, and, and he was interested in publishing them. So I signed a, a publishing deal with Exciting Press in April of 2012. And on June 18th, 2012, uh, they published Footsteps. That would become the first a story that uh, was published by Exciting Press that I had written, so uh, so that was a, that was pretty exciting for me. And so what I've done for you guys, uh, I've done an audio reading. I, I've literally never ever done an audio reading before, so this is my my first crack at it. So uh, and and actually, it's worth mentioning that uh, Chanel has not heard this yet. So without further ado, I present to you footsteps. Driving home from the morgue, my thoughts filled with death. I marveled at how comfortably I wore my newly acquired secret. Maybe it was all the dinners my father missed, because he was too busy bending his secretary over to check his watch. 
Maybe it was the residue of white powder on his nostril, the night he gave me a black eye for smoking pot. Maybe it was all the times I watched my mother cry herself to sleep in the middle of the day on account of the man she chose to marry. Whatever the reason, and believe me, there are plenty to choose from. I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps. Regardless of what strings he pulled, I decided not to attend the Peterson and Glasgow College Fair. It was probably the most important decision I'd ever made for myself. Peterson and Glasgow were a couple of wealthy corporate types who hosted an exclusive college fair which brought together a small collection of prestigious universities, mostly from the Ivy League. The fair itself was invitation only, and from what my dad told me, over and over again, it's a nearly impossible invitation to receive. Pete Peterson is a very wealthy associate of mine with tremendous connections, he'd said. Five minutes with him can secure your future for the next 50 years, so don't fuck it up. But college, like the fair itself, wasn't something I cared to invest my time in. I had simpler interests, such as going to the mall and hanging out in women's dressing rooms. The morning of the college fair, I stayed in bed as long as I could. I knew that my father would be sitting at the breakfast table, drinking his black coffee, and reading the section of the newspaper that told him about his money. He'd be waiting for me. Not to give me a ride, mind you. He'd just want to watch me go out the door, making sure I went to the fair. I doubt he'd bother following me to make sure I actually arrived at the fair. He'd probably save that chore for some ambitious intern training to be him. Rusty, my mom called from downstairs. Can I meet your breakfast before it gets cold? Getting out of bed, I went to my closet and pulled out the fancy suit my dad bought me just for the college fair. He'd insisted I be dressed appropriately. He picked out the suit himself and had it tailored to fit me just right, so anybody I met would think I was a chip off the old block. The entire outfit was brand new, except for the white dress shirt with my father's initials. R.H. the second, monogrammed over the breast pocket. He had an entire inventory of these shirts, still in the plastic, lining his drawers. I was my father's namesake, the third generation of rusty hankovers. The smell of black coffee, which I had learned to disdain, met me at the bottom of the stairs as I entered the kitchen, looking like a miniature version of my father except for the tie that hung around my neck, untied. I never learned how to tie one properly, despite my father's frustrated efforts. My mom was standing over the sink, washing dishes. Sit down and eat, honey, she said. You don't want to be late. There were two plates of food on the kitchen table, each of them equally untouched. One was mine, the other my father's. Where's dad? I asked. I don't know, she said, setting down a glass of milk. He had a late meeting and he hasn't come home yet. I'm sure he's fine. I'm just beginning to worry is all. She handed me a copy of one of her tabloid magazines, which was open to a story buried in the middle. 
The headline read, The Back Alley Cannibal Eats Again. What if some wild man ate your father? I think we'd have found out by now. But this back alley cannibal has eaten a lot of people already, she said, and the police don't have any leads. If there really is a cannibal on the loose, I said, I'm sure a supermarket tabloid wouldn't be the only one with the scoop. What time are you supposed to be at the fair? Nine, I said. I'll be late if I take the bus. Can I drive? You know your father wouldn't want that. He doesn't have to know, I said. I don't know if that's such a good idea, Rusty, she said. Taking hold of my tie, she worked it into the same complex knot my father had tried to teach me when I was a kid. Whenever I got it wrong, he'd make me stand with my nose against the wall while holding a ping-pong paddle as high up as my arms would stretch. He told me he would beat me with the paddle if I lowered it before I was supposed to. He never gave me a time limit. Sometimes I made it. Sometimes I didn't. Listen, she said, smoothing the tie against my chest. If you don't get that car back before your father comes home, you and I both are going to be in a lot of trouble. No problem. Grabbing my backpack, I ran into the garage. Inside my backpack was a shopping bag from Carnage, which was a trendy shop in the mall frequented by women with well-to-do husbands. Starting up the car, I backed out of the garage, down the long driveway, and out onto the private road that would take me down the steep hill on which our home was built. The Peterson and Glasgow College Fair was being held in the ballroom of the illustrious Carlstown Hotel, where my dad spent a lot of his time and money. Inside were a lot of slick-looking guys, no older than me, maneuvering from booth to booth like sharks in suits. They collected business cards, drank complimentary coffee, and talked about golf with any suit that would give them their attention. The only thing I wanted was my name tag with Rusty Hankover III on it, so later that night when he got home from wherever he was, I could prove to my father that I showed up. I received my name tag from a woman at the front desk who told me someone was waiting to meet me. While I stood at the desk, placing the sticker over my father's monogram, the woman made a phone call, telling whoever was on the other end that I'd arrived. A few moments later, a husky man with a thick beard came out to greet me. Rusty the Third, I presume, he said with a big yellow smile. The name's Pete Peterson. He shook my hand, squeezing it like he meant to injure me. Hi. I don't want to take up too much of your time, he said, as I'm sure you have a lot of schmoozing you want to do. I've been trying to track down your father. We were supposed to get a round of golf in this morning, but he never showed. I haven't seen him. He's a slippery one, that dad of yours, he said, slapping me on the arm. I called him a few times at his office and on his cell phone, but he's not answering. You know if he has any other numbers I can try? I don't think so. Okay, 
he said. Well, Rusty, you go on ahead and enjoy yourself out there. I'll catch up with you later. Once Pete Peterson was out of sight, I left the Carlstown Hotel and headed straight for the mall. Sitting in the parking lot, I took the carnage bag out of my backpack and stuffed my suit jacket inside to give it some weight. Walking around the mall, I wanted to make sure I looked like I'd been shopping. I made stops at all my favorite women's clothing stores, and in each one I'd sit in the dressing room area, back slouched with my carnage bag at my feet. Nobody ever asked questions if you were a guy alone in the dressing area. They just assumed you were a bored boyfriend, or husband. This left me ample time to gaze beneath the doors, enjoying all of the beautiful feet. Rich women with rich feet killed me. I loved the pretentiousness of a French manicure, the gaudiness of a toe ring, the way an ankle bracelet rested just on top of the foot, framing it like a masterpiece. I loved watching a woman stand on her tippy toes, raising her smooth heels, creating a sexy stream of pampered skin, carrying right into the curves of her calves. Carnage was the best door of the bunch, which was why I always made it my last stop. They had the most comfortable sofa, the most beautiful women, and the best doors for admiring feet. I wasn't in Carnage for very long before I spotted a wrecked pair of feet that looked absolutely out of place. The nails were yellowed and overgrown, the heels cracked, and the skin was ashy. A pair of old blue jeans dropped around the ankles, each foot stepping out before kicking them to the side. A small pair of hands, which didn't belong to the ugly feet, reached down and picked the pants up. Next, a white v-neck shirt, speckled and splashed with reddish-brown stains, fell to the floor, which was also retrieved by the small hands. Moments later, a nice pair of black pants unfurled, the length of which was being measured against her legs. One foot at a time rose up and disappeared, reappearing with toes pointed, sliding through the pant leg. Mommy, said a tiny voice from behind the door. Are his pants too big? They're fine, sweetie bird. The mom reached down and rolled up the pant legs before slipping on a worn out pair of sneakers. While she tied her shoes with fingers that matched her feet, a phone rang from behind the dressing room door. Mommy, the tiny voice said. Can I answer it? No, you can't. Why not? Because I don't like you talking to strangers, she said, pressing buttons until the phone stopped ringing. Without warning, the door swung open, and I got my first look at the mother and daughter pair. The daughter was a tiny little thing who couldn't have been more than five or six years old. The mom was wearing an oversized black suit, the sleeves rolled up above her wrists. Under the jacket was a white dress shirt that hung to her knees. She held a duffel bag in one hand and her daughter's hand in the other. Her daughter's clothes, pink corduroy pants, a Barbie t-shirt, and matching sneakers fit her much more appropriately than her mother's suit. What are you staring at? The mother said. Rusty. 
I was speechless, trying to figure out how she knew my name, until I realized she was reading my name tag from the college fair. Tearing it off, I tossed it onto the floor, exposing the monogram beneath which, for just a moment or two, seemed to hold the mother's attention. That's not nice to do, mister, the little girl said, picking up the name tag. What's not nice to do, sweetie bird? her mother asked. It's not nice to litter, mommy, she said. Remember? You mean litter, she said. It's not nice to litter. Like, follow the leader? No, sweetie bird, she said, crouching down to meet her daughter's eyes. Litter and leader sort of sound the same, but they're different. They're different and the same? Something like that. The mother and her daughter left the dressing room, and I followed shortly behind them. Before they could exit the store, the assistant manager of Carnage stopped them, a glamorous woman with long legs and high heels. I'd seen her many times before. In the past, she'd looked at me strangely, but never questioned my presence. To throw her off my trail, I would, from time to time, purchase accessories at the counter for my imaginary girlfriend. What were you doing in there? She asked. Trying on clothes, the mother said. Where are the clothes? I left them in the dressing room. The assistant manager called to the shop girl behind the counter. Check the dressing room for loose clothes, she told her. The assistant manager stood silently in front of the mother and daughter until the shop girl came out, empty-handed. Where are the clothes? The assistant manager asked. That sounds like your job to figure out, the mother said. Can I go now? I'm afraid not, she said, eyeing the duffel bag. Mommy, the daughter said. We didn't do anything wrong, did we? No, sweetie bird, she said. Not a thing. I'm going to have to look inside your bag, the assistant manager said. There's nothing in here for you to look at. If you don't want to cooperate, she said, I'll call security. I didn't steal any of your clothes, the mother said. Spotting me, she said, ask him. Sir, the assistant manager said, could I have a word with you, please? I pointed at myself, feigning confusion. Yes, you, sir, she said. Hi, Rusty, the mother said as I approached. Are you here with this woman? Of course he's here with me, she said. You don't think he's hanging out in the dressing room by himself like some sort of pervert, do you? The assistant manager ignored her, waiting instead for me to answer. I nodded. Well, she said, I believe your friend is trying to steal merchandise from my store. I didn't know what to say. Call security, she told the shop girl. Maybe you should just show her what's in the bag, I said. Mind your business, Rusty. Mommy, when can we eat? The mother turned to look at her daughter, and in that brief moment, the assistant manager snatched the duffel bag from her. Before the mother could react, the assistant manager had the bag unzipped and was rifling through it until something inside caused her to shriek, dropping it to the floor. She frantically wiped her hands against her skirt while the mother picked the bag up, zipping it shut. This isn't a YMCA, the assistant manager said. Next time you need some place to change, 
go find a goddamned porta potty. Gladly, your majesty, she said, bowing down at the waist. While bent over, the mother's hair parted across her neck, and I noticed the same dark reddish-brown stain on the back of her collar that was on the other clothes. Straightening back up, her jacket opened, revealing my father's R.H. II monogram. Taking her daughter's hand, the mother walked out of carnage. I started to follow her out when the security guard showed up. Pressing his hands on my chest, he held me in place. Is this the troublemaker, ma'am? No, they're gone, the assistant manager said. Get him out of here. The security guard walked me out of the mall, but not before I could get one last look at the mother and her little girl walking away. When I arrived home, there was a police car parked along the curb in front of our house. I found my mom sitting in the living room, her face buried in her hands. It sounded like she was crying. An officer sat next to her, stroking her shoulders. Another officer, with no one to soothe, introduced himself to me as Officer Kirkland. Are you the son? Yes. I have some unfortunate news, Kirkland told me. Your father was found dead this morning. What happened? We don't know yet, he said. Forensics is investigating it. There appears to have been foul play involved. Are there any witnesses? None to speak of, he said. We found him not far from his office building. We need someone to identify the body. I hate to put you in this situation, but your mother's pretty shaken up. When should I go? As soon as you think you can. Right now? You can take a little time if you need it. I'd like to see him now. I'll get one of my men to give you a ride. I'd like to drive myself. Okay. I drove down to the morgue where a sympathetic woman was waiting for me. She was the forensic pathologist in charge of determining how my father died. She took me into a large, cold room where the walls were made of steel and filled with large drawers. Leading me to one of the drawers, the pathologist pulled it out from the wall. She unzipped the body bag, careful not to expose more than his face. Even with the fingernail scratches on his cheek and the bite mark behind his ear, he looked relatively normal. But the body bag, like a playground snitch, told a different story. Where his thighs were, the bag sunk down low, like potholes, as if he were an amputee. His legs, for the most part, were still there, however. The bag also concaved into his chest, as if an invisible bowling ball had been dropped on top of him. His shoulders and arms appeared to be intact, which made the crater in his torso look all the more odd. I confirmed for the pathologist that the man hiding under the plastic was my father. I liked him much better this way. In the moments before I was escorted out of that cold, sterile room filled with death, I thought of that sweet little girl with the tiny voice smiling at me as her mother towed her away. Holding her mother's hand, she walked without reservation, without doubt, trusting it would take her wherever she needed to be.
All right, well, that was my very first audio reading. That was my short story, Footsteps. As we mentioned right before we played it for you, Chanel hadn't heard it before, so that was actually Chanel's first time listening to it. So how'd you like it? Wow. It was so creepy. (laughs) I loved it. And I'd heard the story before, but just the way you read it and the music, it made it really spooky and like I was kind of uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. But no, I loved it and I love the music. Um, Yeah, no, I should mention uh, the the score uh, is written and composed by my brother, Greg, Greg Lestraps. And uh, even though I would like to say that he did the score especially for this audio reading. It's actually a score from a, a short film he made a, a few years back called Paulette Breaks Up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, also a very creepy movie. Very. It makes sense. Yeah, it was It was really perfect. It was a great, uh, it was a great reading. I could really picture it. You know, I kind of could see it as a movie, you know, playing Thanks. out, and it, it would be a great little short film, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, I, one of the things I realized, because, again, I've never done an, an audio reading, one of the things I realized is that uh, I wanted to try to give uh, an authentic voice to to, to this character, to, to the narrator, because, you know, I think it's easy for a reader to mistake the, you know, the, the characters for the writer. I mean, it's an easy mistake to make because to a large extent, these characters are the writer. These characters are extensions uh, of me. And every time a writer writes something, the characters are an extension of who they are. But by the same token you know, I'm making an effort to create somebody real, you know. So even though it's, you know, my words and my story and in an audio way, it's my voice, I want, I still wanted to try to create something or rather I, I wanted to try to create somebody, you know, unique for myself. So, mm-hmm. uh, but even then I didn't quite know what to do. So what I was actually doing was um, I think I was, I was sort of drawing my inspiration from uh, Kevin Spacey and House of Cards. I could totally hear that, actually. And and, um, and the the voiceovers in Dexter. Those are the, the oh. those are the two that I had in my mind. But most specifically nice. was uh, probably because I, I recently just finished watching season two of House of Cards. So yeah. so I had that sort of uh, really cold, creepy uh, voice that uh, that uh, Kevin Spacey has in House of Cards. Yeah, I can definitely hear both of those. And um, like Rusty's a really interesting character too, and. You know, even though he's a character I've met before on the page, like yeah. you doing the voice made him very different, right? Because he's not, like, he's very dark himself. He's yeah. not our typical kind of hero of a story of, like, yay, Rusty wins. He's very um, sort of complex. You know, he's really unaffected by the death of his dad in this gruesome way. And in a way, it almost seems like he's, like, well, he is relieved, I think. Yeah. And... um you know, with the whole kind of foot fetish thing, like it immediately adds this sort of um, like interesting layer, this darkness of, you know, he's not just a dude. He's not just sitting around smoking weed. He doesn't want to go to school, but, <laughs> you know, he just like he might have his own things like where, you know, wherever his dad had his darkness, you know, Rusty might not be too far behind just in sort of maybe different ways. That's a really great point. I've literally never made that connection, <laughs> but that's a really great connection to make. Uh, yeah, well, it, one of the interesting things also of doing, you know, an audio performance is that, you know, once I got to that, it, like, once I got to that last scene where Rusty does find out his dad mm-hmm. died, one of the benefits of writing just words on the page is I can get away with not having to make that choice of what's mm-hmm. he sound like. And so, so in the, in the actual narration on the page, I didn't, I didn't write anything like, you know, Rusty shrieked or, 
Rusty was clearly distraught. Right. I, I left it. I left it very. You know, I left it un unspecified on purpose. Mm-hmm. And that way, the reader can sort of in their own minds as they read it. You know, they could hear how he reacts. Yeah. But in an audio performance, I don't have that same luxury. So I had to make you know a. I guess sort of a performance choice as a voice actor, which I'm not. But, you know, <laughs> I play one on this podcast. And the other, uh, the other interesting thing that uh, you just sort of reminded me of when you were talking is when Rusty comes home and the officer's with his mother. You say, "It sounds like <laughs> yes. she's crying," which made me think: mm-hmm. Is she also relieved? Is she laughing? Is she actually <laughs> crying? So what was that supposed to be? Kind of um, you've, gray. You've got a very good ear for detail i'm glad you're my occasional (laughs) co-host that was a very very specific but subtle detail i put in there Mm -hmm. i wasn't sure how obvious it would be but it but that was a very specific detail i put Mm -hmm. because because you know like rusty um his his mom she's uh, afraid of him right yeah the whole thing with the car you know we're both going to be in trouble yeah she doesn't want to get in trouble with the car uh you know in the early narration you know I, i paint a little bit of a picture of sort of you know the 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 relationship and the marriage but yeah so the dad as far as the dad being this monster um that was a a very important theme in in the story that uh because you know you know rusty has this dad and you know the dad he has money uh rusty lives in what i imagine is a very nice house i didn't describe it but you know uh because it's a short story i kind of took some liberties in terms of you know giving very sort of bare details letting the, the reader fill in the rest but but you know the dad has some money you know, they probably live, you know, comfortably, but, you know, it's a very cold house with this, you know, monster of a father. And then later in the story, we meet another parent. You know, we meet we meet the mother in the dressing room. And, of course, you know, it's not a spoiler because you just listen to the story. <laughs> we, you know, we more or less understand, as Rusty does, that this woman murdered his father. And not only did she murder his father... Uh, she's also a cannibal. She's the back alley cannibal that Rusty's mom you know, read about in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you know, she's got a, a little girl who she's clearly feeding human meat to because, you know, mm-hmm. her daughter keeps asking, you know, her mommy, can we eat now? Mm-hmm. So we've got these two parents. We've got, you know, Rusty's dad, this you know very cold man. And then we have this mother who, you know, is both a murderer and a cannibal. And yet, hopefully, if the story reads the way that I intended it to, uh, the mother comes off as warm and caring and uh, a good parent that despite being a murderer and a cannibal that you know her little girl is going to be better off than Rusty was growing mm-hmm. up with his dad so that was one of the, the primary themes that I was trying to play out in the story yeah and I think you demonstrated it um, in the dressing room when the little girl you know doesn't understand the difference between litter and leader and even though you know the the mother she doesn't have a name, I guess, right? No, she the never cannibal. gave her a name. Okay, so even though she, like, you know, knows that Rusty's been watching her and is like, get out of my effing business, get out of my face, she stops. Like, even though she's kind of having this confrontation <laughs> to, like, crouch down and talk to her little girl and say, oh, no, honey, you know, leader and litter are different, even though, they, you know, she has this kind of yeah. sweet exchange, which is almost kind of weird, but also it works because it's sort of showing, you know... She's taking this parenting thing seriously. Yeah. And then, too, like, you know, you're like, oh, cannibal monster. But that little girl's not a monster, right? Like, yeah. she loves her mommy. She's just hungry like any of us would be. You know, it's yeah. like to her, it's normal. So, yeah, it's really, it was cool. It was really interesting. Yeah, as I was doing the reading, one of the things that I found is that, you know, like when I write it, there are certain things that I hear in a very specific way, whether it's a certain, mm-hmm. if, whether it's an emphasis on a word or a pause between 
you know sentences and uh for a reader you know they you know they they read it the way that they read it and that's cool but they don't necessarily get to hear it the way it's Mm -hmm. in my head so with an audio reading uh, i realized you know very quickly that this was actually a cool opportunity to to do that yeah i really love audio readings and i've listened to like um you know, a couple audiobooks, mm-hmm. and there's a difference between when it's read by somebody else, like when it's read by a star, it's awesome. But when you hear it read by the author, like I listened to a uh, Neil Gaiman short story audiobook. Oh, cool. I can't remember the name of it right now, unfortunately. But it was like really, really good. And then my other example I can think of is um, Lolita. Oh, yeah. I listened to the audiobook read by um, Jeremy Irons, yeah. which was amazing rem- and really good. Yeah, I remember you listening to that and loving it. I think you listened to it, and it probably took you a few days, but you know. Yeah, I listened to it really quickly. I had a commute to work, so I would listen all the way there, all the way back, and um, it was great. But, um, but even though Jeremy Irons is this great actor... It, it was just different hearing like Neil Gaiman reading his own words because mm-hmm. it's like there's the deeper understanding when you're the person who wrote it. You know what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously you couldn't have the is it, is it Nabokov, <laughs> uh, yeah, the author yeah. of Lolita. Yeah, yeah. Obviously he couldn't uh, <laughs> he couldn't read it. And, uh, you know, a few uh, just a few other tidbits about the story that uh, I imagine the listeners might be interested in hearing. One, if you've read Inside the Outside, then you'll clearly recognize the theme of cannibalism because mm-hmm. because uh, Inside the Outside, you know, is, uh, you know, takes place in a in a in a cult up in the San Bernardino Mountains. It's a cult of, of cannibals. But uh, as far as this theme of cannibalism, I first sort of stumbled onto a, an interest in this theme uh, right around that time. I would say like 2003, 2004, somewhere, maybe even earlier than that. Um when I was in, uh, I think I was in, uh, let's see, I was an undergrad. I was working on my bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. majoring in English uh, with with an emphasis on creative writing. But there was this class. We both took it, but separately. I always forget the name of it, though. I know, me too. It was uh, sort of a very, kind of a very general. It was like uh, a life science class. Yeah. It was um, something about, like, environment and life or you and the environment like it was yeah. something yeah like i remember that we learn about like the environment and agriculture and mm-hmm. uh, sort of amongst other things you know we learn about slaughterhouses <laughs> slaughterhouses <laughs> like we learn about how they how they function how they work we also kind of got uh, you know some insight on you know uh uh humankind's impact on these things so it was a very interesting class mm-hmm. Uh, but during this class, you know, it was my first real exposure and, ter- and, and, you know, like reading literature and like seeing some videos and listening to lectures, you know, about, you know, farming and slaughterhouses and sort of how in the uh, how, you know, not not in all, you know, farms and slaughterhouses, but unfortunately, many of them are run very, uh, very poorly with, mm-hmm. with a lot of, you know, uh, abusive, um, I-, I was going to say tactics. I don't know if that's quite the right the right word but but you know the animals even though uh at the end of the day they're going to be you know slaughtered and you know Mm -hmm. but you know up to that point they're you know they're still you know abused very very severely and so i kind of got this idea because again at the same time i'm studying english and i'm studying creative writing this was about the time that that i was kind of learning about you know allegories how, how you can take one story and how it can, you know, represent something else. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me, the, this idea of like farms and, and slaughterhouse and these animals being abused, for me, it was really like, it's very dramatic, you know, mm-hmm. like I was very moved by it and very sort of upset by it. But, and I was thinking, you know, this, 
this would make an interesting story, I think, because it's very dramatic, except, you know, I don't, I, I couldn't imagine anybody being interested in a story about farming. <laughs> I couldn't imagine myself writing a story about farming, but they, I, but I felt like there was some something dramatic at the core worth writing about. And so then I was thinking, well, if it, if it was an allegory, what could I do with it? How could I make this interesting? And then that's when the, the light bulb went off. And I thought, well, what if I replace the the animals with people? And then, and then you know, then it, I, I sort of stumbled onto this sort of cannibal theme, and uh, and it stuck with me for for a while. I didn't I didn't sit down and write anything right away, but I just had this theme of you know a cannibal story. I want to write a cannibal story, and it and really I think it stuck with me for for years before uh, I eventually sat down and wrote footsteps. Footsteps became the first you know real story that I wrote using this this cannibal uh, theme. And then, uh, and then later, uh, a couple years later, I began writing the the novel that would become Inside the Outside, which also, uh, at its core, has a very prominent theme of of cannibalism. But that's kind of where it came from. And uh, another tidbit, and uh, this is where you can actually help me out. Another tidbit is uh, in the footsteps is the actual idea of Rusty being, uh, you know, this kind of creepy uh, foot fetish voyeur. Uh, specifically, you know, going to the mall and hanging out in women's clothing stores, uh, which, you know, it, it, it's meant to be creepy. If, if, if it creeped you out too much, then uh, please accept my apology. But, <laughs> um, but by the same token, if it did creep you out too much, then uh, as, a, as a storyteller and a writer, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> but, uh, but this was actually your doing, unknowingly. I mean, at the time you knew it. <laughs> So in 2003, you and I, we took our first vacation together. We went to Las Vegas. And, uh, and so, you know, on the strip in Las Vegas, uh, if you're familiar, there's, a, there's the, the mall, what's it called? Fashion, fashion show. Fashion show, yeah. Mm-hmm. And every time we go to Las Vegas, Chanel always makes at least <laughs> two or three trips to, to this uh, fashion show mall. Yeah. So, I, I basically find reasons, like I'll accidentally rip my nylons or, <laughs> gee, I better go to the mall. <laughs> yeah, like at, at this point, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much resigned to, to the idea that uh, we're going to go. She doesn't have to make excuses anymore. <laughs> we'll just go to the mall. <laughs> and so this on this on this particular trip, we went to Rampage, right? That was yeah, a story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rampage was a really popular store, um, like back in, I'd say like the 90s to the mid-2000s, probably even later 2000s. I'm not sure the stores exist anymore. I think the brand still does. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this really like kind of higher end brand, but not like, you know... It wasn't super, super duper expensive. It was just sort of like nicer clothes. It was going to be nicer than, say, like your Forever 21 or your Contempo. Um, so just like a really stylish kind of higher end store, you know, really pretty employees, really well dressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they had these um, the dressing rooms where, you know, you had this kind of um, I don't even know what you'd call those kind of doors. It's kind of like in the Old West when you see them going <laughs> to a saloon. Yeah. They're like the swinging doors. And they had those, and they came up, gosh, probably to about your knee, I guess, you could yeah. see under the door. And there was this huge, beautiful, like, I think it was a red couch. Yeah, really comfortable. Right in front. <laughs> yeah, like a comfortable, for, you know, basically people to wait. Mostly yeah. it's going to be guys, your husbands, your boyfriends, your dad, you know, whoever you're <laughs> shopping with to kind of hang out and sit while you try stuff on. So you picked out some clothes that you wanted to try on. So I went into the dressing room with you. And I don't think it was a co-ed dressing room, but it wasn't, there was nothing about, you know, keeping like boys out 
And I think that's, you know, they had the big comfortable couch. So in part, you know, it's to have people that are waiting. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting on this big comfortable couch and you've done some other shopping, I believe. So I had a shopping bag at my feet and you were in the dressing room. And so it occurred to me while I was sitting there, you know, waiting for you in this dressing room that even though, you know, I knew that I was there with you and you knew that I was there with you, uh, that nobody else really knew why I was there. (laughs) And then the other thought occurred to me that if anybody saw me, a customer or just somebody working there, you know, they would just sort of assume that I was waiting for somebody. Like, why why would anybody be there if they weren't waiting for somebody? (laughs) And so as these thoughts are going through my head, I was like, this would be, you know, an ideal situation for some creepy guy who was sort of voyeuristic, Mm -hmm. who had kind of figured this idea out that, you know, who's asking questions of the guy sitting in the dressing room. They just assume that he's there with somebody. And so then because, you know, because the doors were like that, I was like, well, you know, this would, if if somebody was, if somebody was looking to, to kind of be voyeuristic and, and, you know, look at feet, this apparently is the ideal scenario. (laughs) So pretty much after we left the store, I had this idea. I didn't have a story yet, but I had this idea and I was kind of describing this character. And again, he wasn't a fully fleshed out character, but it's essentially describing this character to Chanel based on this uh, based on this experience. So I had this idea now of, you know, this this character, this creepy guy, whoever he was, who goes into women's dressing rooms and will have some kind of a shopping bag because it looks like he's, you know, with somebody and he sits there and he, you know, and he looks at feet. And I liked the idea, but I knew at least I felt like there wasn't enough there to do anything with it, but I, but I still liked the idea. And so it might've been a few months to pass. I don't know exactly how long, but at some, at some point, um, it occurred to me that I could fuse these two ideas together, that I could do something with this cannibal idea that I wanted to write and this, you know, creepy, you know, foot fetish voyeur story that I wanted to write. So then I thought, well, what would happen if I combine these two stories and so when I when I sort of brainstormed and kind of put them together, ultimately I came up with Footsteps. And uh, as I said, you know, Footsteps was my first piece of published fiction. It was published, uh, as I mentioned, first in the Pacific Review in 2005. Uh, that's uh, again, that's the literary magazine at uh, Cal State San Bernardino. It's a, a annual literary magazine, so it comes out once a year. And it was really really exciting, you know, when I got that published because I wasn't. I, I think. In total, I'd only had one other piece of writing published, so this was the second thing that, that I'd ever had published, and it was very, very exciting. So anyway, I uh, I really hope you enjoyed the audio reading. I will be doing more readings in the future. I, I don't know exactly when. I, I don't have them planned out, but, but it was fun, and I look forward to, to trying that again. I do want to give one more shout-out to uh, Exciting Press, the, uh, the publisher of Footsteps and its uh, most recent incarnation. Uh, so Exciting Press and uh, my friend and publisher, Will and Trekin at, at Exciting Press, mm-hmm. who published Footsteps. Uh, and he published it in uh, in digital form. So so uh, Footsteps, if you want to get it in print form, it doesn't exist unless <laughs> you have the, uh, the time and the means to track down a copy of the Pacific Review from 2005, which I guess isn't crazy if, if you were really intent on doing it. I'm sure you could find a copy of it. But... Uh, since uh, most of you listening, I'm guessing, have, uh, if you don't have Kindles or iPads or some digital reader of some sort, you probably have an iPhone or, or something. Uh, even if you don't, you can read it on your computer. At any rate, uh, Footsteps exist in digital form thanks to Exciting Press. And more than that, it's only 99 cents. 
It's 99 cents. So you can have your very own copy of Footsteps for less money than uh, than you're going to spend on your on your daily coffee. Yeah. At Starbucks or you know, wherever you get it, I suppose. <laughs> and actually, you know what would be fun is get yourself a copy of, of Footsteps and then uh, replay this podcast. And uh, you can listen to the audio reading while reading along with the, the story. That'd be so fun. Get a whole what different a idea. Get a whole different experience out of it. Uh, oh, you know what? I can't believe I almost forgot this. When you do buy footsteps, because I assume slash hope that uh, you'll you'll go ahead and buy yourself a copy of footsteps, don't forget, buy it on Amazon, go through the website, martinlestrapshow.com, click on the shop page. Uh, on the shop page, you'll see icons for all of my published work, including footsteps. Go ahead and click on it, get yourself a copy. Uh, not only will I appreciate it, but because of that shopping experience, the show will uh, will get kicked back a, a small percentage of, of your purchase. And as we tell you every week, we uh, reinvest that money into the show to make the show as good as we can possibly make it. Because that's exactly what we want to do for you. So anyway, I'm Martin Lestrap signing off. And this here is Chanel Chaco. And until next time, I'll see you on the other side. Peace out, bitches.